is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. Our show today is all about the economics of art, looking at what are the dollars and figures surrounding art in our communities in Minnesota, and what is the economic impact that the arts programs have, whether it's people who go to the arts, whether it's patrons of theater or going to buy locally made art, or the artists themselves making a living doing art and all of the complexities surrounding that. And we have two wonderful guests to help explain these things. Our first guest is Sheila Smith, who's the executive director of Minnesota Citizens for the Arts and has been since 1996. She was one of the leaders of the 2008 Legacy Amendment that created 25 years of dedicated funding for the arts and environment. She's also the chair of Creative Minnesota, and she works as an adjunct professor for the University of Minnesota in both Minneapolis and Duluth. She also enjoys kayaking, hiking, and is a champion trivia competitor. Our other guest is Laura Zabel, who's the executive director of Springboard for the Arts, which under her tenure grew the balance sheet from $200,000 to $2.5 million and has grown its reach from the Twin Cities to national. She's a frequent speaker of the arts and community development. She was a 2014 Bush Foundation Fellow and was named one of the 50 most influential people in the U.S. nonprofit arts. Uh, yeah, they're a wonderful duo to express and talk about the arts and explore these issues, and we're fortunate to have them. Also, I'd like to point out that our media sponsor this season is MinPost, which provides reader-supported news and analysis. You can find all their coverage at www.minpost.com. Um, yeah, I think that's everything. Uh, the economics of art. I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. Okay, thank you both so much for being here. This is this is such a fun, I don't know, meta conversation because we're this is an improv show and we're going to talk about arts and the economy and the economic impacts and whatnot. So um, fun. Uh, so uh, this is just the like uh, explaining what we're going to do right before we do it, and then at the end of the show we'll explain what we've done and then hopefully get a B plus. Um, so. I just want to sort of set the table, so, and we wanted to specifically frame this show sort of around how the arts impact the economy. So maybe uh, whoever wants to start, can you just sort of give us a sense? We all think about, oh, the arts are good and they, they make our lives rich and whatever, but how do they, oh, this is important. Thank you very much. Um, uh, so how do they make, uh, what are the actual tangible impacts right here in Minnesota that we know about uh, for the arts when we're thinking uh, monetarily or otherwise. All right. All right, hit us, go. Uh, three or four years ago, a lot of us that work in statewide arts policy were talking about how, how there was no really good hard data about the arts community in Minnesota. So we banded together and created an, a project called Creative Minnesota. Our first report came out in 2015, and we found that the nonprofit arts and culture organizations only have uh, 1.2 billion dollars in economic impact annually in Minnesota. Woo! That is from 19 million attendees in around 1,269 nonprofit arts and culture organizations. Uh, we didn't have the opportunity then to study the economic impact of individual artists, but I got today. Really? Are we breaking news right now? Breaking news. Okay. <laughs> this is not public and you can't tell anyone this. It's okay. No one listens to this show. Because this report will come out in, in February of 2017, but the individual artists have nearly $700 million in economic impact in Minnesota. Wow. So uh, can you help, uh, help unpack that a little bit? When you say uh, it has this number economic impact, what, what is that actually? Is that just actual sort of adding to the state GDP or um, 
other things? What, yeah, what does well, that mean? Yeah, for well, the, for the nonprofit arts and culture organizations, which is the public report, right, um, about six or seven hundred uh, um, million dollars in just what are they spending in the economy. So the Guthrie Theater uh, prints a lot of programs. They're spending a lot of money with printing. They're spending money on their, their electric bill. They're paying over 200 people to work at the Guthrie. All of the different things that the Guthrie is spending money on, it's just counting up the total of their annual expense budget and then adding that to the annual expense budgets of the 1,268 other nonprofit arts and culture organizations in Minnesota. So it's just direct spending, no multipliers or anything. Then the second piece is what are audiences spending on their way to or on their way home from an event? So say you're coming here to the Bryant Lake Bowl and you've got kids. You're going to hire a babysitter. You're going to get in the car and come over. And on your way, on your way you're like, oh, we're out of gas. you got to buy gas. How did you so, figure this out? Did you, like, go to people at theaters and, like, hey, do you have yeah, kids? Yeah, we, we surveyed <laughs> – for this study, we surveyed well over 1,000 attendees at events all over the state. And uh, so they – you know, before the event, here you are. You're spending money at Bryant Lake Bowl for your meal and for whatever you're drinking. And, look, some of you are drinking more things. Um, and then at intermission, you may drink some more, and then after, you may go over to the bar because this was so awesome and you want to talk about how awesome it was, and you That's drink some more. That's one reason to go to the bar, then yes. You, then you call an Uber, and they take you home. Okay. Um, and so at each step of the way, this person who's come to this event has had an economic interaction with town that wouldn't have happened if they just stayed home and watched The Voice in their bar barca lounger. So... To me, the Barco Lounger is the enemy of the arts because it, people sitting at home, they're not having any economic impact uh, at all. Can I just say, so you said, you did, uh, we talked a little bit before the show, and you mentioned Barco Loungers are the enemy of the artist, and I had to look up what a Barco Lounger is. You don't know <laughs> what a Barco Lounger is? I do, it's it's, it's a, world it's, famous, it's the like, most comfortable chair made. It's a lazy boy, right? Yeah. Basically? Yeah. 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 But there's a dog involved somehow. Well, it's, it's probably the precursor of a lazy boy, really. But what? Okay. I, and so, how old are you? Uh, yes, thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, I mean, young people sit in chairs too. Like this one. Yeah, like this good one. Good job. This is a good chair. Yeah. All right. So, um, <laughs> what were we talking about? I, I have, I, I want to, <laughs> I have two competing thoughts with the same idea. Great. One, one of them is that I, um, in addition to all of those sort of direct economic impacts, I think the other one of the other big picture ways that art and artists interact with the economy, especially in a place <laughs> like Minnesota, is um, in terms of our quality of life and the way we think about where we want to live and where we want to make a life. And I think Minnesota is a great example nationally of a place that has built a reputation around quality of life and around a place where people want to come and stay because they have access to cultural opportunity, because they feel like it's a place where they can be creative and have a creative life. Um, and that sense of pride of place is, is really a huge piece of how people think about talent attraction and retention and all of those sort of buzzwordy things that mayors and big corporate executives uh, talk about and, and care about. Um, so that's one thought. And then my other competing thought is I kind of feel like a... Um, I'm a def I want to be a defender of the the Barca Lounger because <laughs> I feel I, because apparently we mislabeled this show. It's just uh, mm -hmm. Sheila and Laura's hour on the Barca Lounger. Yep. This uh, is going to be all recliner talk for the next hour. Um, 
Well, because I think that sometimes in the nonprofit arts, we get kind of precious and think that we own the idea of the arts. But if you're at home watching The Voice or so you think you can dance, like you're interacting with an artistic experience and a cultural experience. And I, I have a pretty um, uh, radical sort of openness around what gets to call itself art. And well, so I completely agree with you there. I love The Voice. The I'm obsessed by The Voice. <laughs> but when I'm sitting in my bark lounger, I'm not spending money in town. And this is right. about the economic impact of the arts, and so true. So, uh, but this actually brings me to a kind of a question that I, I've honestly grappled with myself, and I've had debates with some people about, uh, which is just this very straightforward: Is everyone an artist? Everyone. That's my response exactly. Yes. Everyone who wants to be an artist can be an artist. I believe that, like, to my core, that if you have creative capacity, if you are interested in sharing your creativity with the world, then absolutely you could and should call yourself an artist. That's good. And, and that is a very, like, positive frame on that until you think about the person who's like, no, I don't want to share my creative spark with anybody. No, I'm going to say that. I just want to <laughs> do it in my basement, and I don't want anybody to see it. That's yeah. fine. Okay. So, uh, so let's actually uh, – I wanted to follow up on one other piece you talked about that – uh, this is something special about Minnesota that brings people here. Uh, can can either I think you both uh, have worked nationally. What can you say about how Minnesota actually fares in this this economy uh, in the championship? <laughs> this one's mine. Okay. Uh, well, okay. Share, but yeah. Go so, ahead. Minnesota and Wisconsin have roughly the same population, about five and a half million people. Minnesota's arts economy is double that of Wisconsin. <laughs> double. <laughs> And I just went to Wisconsin, had a big conversation with those guys, and we, you know... Did you just rub it in the whole time? Or you just... <laughs> well, actually, Whoa, when they invited please. me to this, two people called me and said, we know you're coming to talk about how awesome Minnesota is. Would you please just not make people feel bad? And so I had to figure that out. Um, uh, so the difference is, one, um, Minnesota has made more investments in the arts over time. Not just the state legacy funding, which MCA created and passed with the legislature in a statewide referendum in 2008, but also um, because we have a corporate community that has funded the arts since the turn of the century and invested in the arts and provided leadership in the arts in Minnesota that built us up, you know, up till the like the 80s and 90s, and then there were other movements that fed off of that, and it got even. So we're kind of like we're like a a snowball going down a hill where Wisconsin never really has invested in either of those ways, and so they're kind of sputtering. Sad. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, and then sort of generally, do you, do you find the same? Because I know uh, Springboard has been sort of Yeah, so we work uh, a lot nationally, and, and in addition to that, um, I'm from Kansas, so um, we have ten that's and, ten, even, even sadder. Minnesota has ten and a half times the arts economy of Kansas. Wow, do you know every, can we just like, like Arkansas? Uh, we have twelve and a half times the arts economy of North Dakota. I don't know Arkansas. I don't have Arkansas. North, but the Dakota is twelve and a half times. Um, Yes, so so we work nationally a lot, and I get the opportunity to go to a lot of other places and sort of see what those differences are. And I will say, like, on the positive side, those investments and our sort of investment in culture and particularly in a very sort of Western white idea of what culture is um, have 
paid off in very robust institutions here and very stable infrastructure um, for art and I think a lot of people would say for a certain kind of art. Um, and that has huge benefits and like uh, there are functionalities and privileges that we have because of that. Um, but I will say that the thing like when I go someplace, uh, particularly like Detroit, um, that has not had that kind of investment or has a much different economic situation and a much different sort of infrastructure, and this is not at all to romanticize Detroit, but there is a sense of sort of DIY, um, I'll do it, I'll raise my hand, I'll step out and, and take care of this in a way that um, sometimes I talk about Minnesota as a permission-based culture uh, <laughs> because we like, you know, we would rather yeah. have a committee or a task force or a nonprofit before anyone says, yes, I would like to fix that I've, problem. I've heard this too, and I, and I feel like I've seen it... Uh, and it's it's an interesting question about we do have such strong arts institutions here, and I've had I've talked to folks who make the argument that yes, that's great, but it actually can almost be a hindrance then to some of that almost more grassroots because people say, it, uh, oh, there should be you know a performance company that does this, uh, you know the Guthrie should set that up, uh, or you know McKnight should fund that or something. Whereas mm -hmm. if you were in one of these other communities, they would just be like, I'll do that. I think it's a you know both have pluses and minuses, and I don't want to diminish um, the importance of functional infrastructure. Like we have functioning government here too, which is actually you know a pretty big deal. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd trade that for a sense of uh, you know. Well, you don't fun want the Mad Max of the arts world. Like, yeah, we can all design our own leather skin suits. Yeah, sweet. I could help you get a grant for that, probably. <laughs> um, but I do think there is like. Um, if, Minis if Minnesota, if Minneapolis and Detroit could have a baby, I think it would be like a super city. Like we'd have functional infrastructure, but we'd also know how to like step out and, and get shit done. Wow. Now I'm just trying to imagine where <laughs> Minneapolis and Detroit would meet. Like anyway, in Wisconsin. In Wisconsin. <laughs> it's fertile ground. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to circle back uh, uh, to Laura uh, a little bit about, we've talked a lot about institutions, but can you talk a little bit about how individual artists sort of uh, think about this? I, I wonder sometimes about like this conversation we're having. I don't know very many artists who said, you know, I'm going to open a public policy improv theater in order to make the money. Uh, but they do have like an impact like and whatnot. So mm -hmm. I don't know. Do do they think enough about this like in this impact or is it sort of a secondary thing entirely? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot that we, you know, we talk a lot about artists are small business owners. They're entrepreneurs. That word entrepreneur is a word that pushes a lot of artist buttons, but I think fundamentally at its core, entrepreneurs are people who are about creative solutions and are about looking into their world and into their context to see what's possible and what's available and building something from that. And that, to me, is a perfect definition of an artist. So if you sort of take that, like, venture capital guy in a hoodie uh, <laughs> stereotype out of what that word means, I think it can be a pretty good label for a lot of artists. Um, so, you know, I, and, and our work is all about figuring out how do artists make a living and a life, and the living piece is a really important piece of that, how artists sustain themselves, um, how 
we as a state, as an economy, as a community are able to benefit from all of this creative activity, all of this creative contribution um, is an important thing to think about and that's you know about how we pay artists and about how artists learn how to get paid and how to ask to be paid and how to um, build their body of work and their practice so that it has a lot of different pieces to it so there are different opportunities for, for income um, and I think for some artists that really looks like you know there are definitely still artists whether you're a theater maker or visual artist or writer who their aspiration is to make their whole living from one source like being in a repertory company at the Guthrie and that's how you make your living and there are I think frankly a lot more artists that are interested in how do I participate in my community in a bunch of different ways, some of which are maybe as an artist and some of which are using my creative skills in another context, in a day job or helping my community or teaching in a school, um, and that there's a way to sort of enter into a lot of places in the economy and a lot of places in the community in order to make that full living in life. So, uh, and this is a question for both of you, if we're thinking about this on a policy level or a, on a state level, or even just as, as citizens, how do we make that sort of more feasible, more possible? I mean, it sounds like Minnesota is doing okay, pretty well at this in some ways, but I've got to imagine that there, there are steps that we could take to make this better and easier. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um just really briefly, the easiest way to say that is the things that we need to do to make life better for everyone, to make our economy work better for everyone, help artists. So um, one of the things that I'm really passionate about is healthcare and health insurance. And so the way that that system works or doesn't work really directly impacts people who are by and large both self-employed and low income. I imagine that like, you know, there's uh, a lot of news just recently about a lot of these dramatic increases in uh, individual market healthcare, and that probably disproportionately hits artistic communities, I'm guessing. Well, the interesting thing about it is that in 2007, we did a study of uh, uh, how much of the artist community was covered by health insurance, and we found that individual artists were twice as likely as the rest of the population to not have health insurance. They were at about 14%. So Springboard for the Arts took that on as their issue. They worked on the Oz program, which you could talk about. Um, <laughs> and then in the most recent study where we surveyed the artist population again, their uninsured rate has dropped to 4%. So it's more or less the same as the rest of the population now. The problem is that the it's un still not affordable. They are covered, right. but it's still not really... If you can't afford to use your insurance, you and it. it's not really <laughs> helping you a lot. Yeah, this is one of the weird... So my background is in theater. And um, one of the weirdest turns in my life is that I now speak healthcare and health insurance. <laughs> that's not something I thought I would know a lot about, but it turns out that that's become sort of an obsession of mine and, and of ours at Springboard. Um, so we, we started a healthcare program after that study that was way before the Affordable Care Act that was just about connecting artists to care. Uh, and then when the Affordable Care Act passed, um, Springboard is one of the only arts organizations in the country that is actually a navigator for the health insurance wow. exchange. Um, so we actually help people sign up for health insurance as a part of our work. Uh, and that also gives us a front row seat to um, what are both the really tremendous wins and, and you know, really useful and helpful and kind of life-changing pieces of having access to health insurance and what are the enormous system problems that exist uh, even post-Affordable Care Act. Uh, 
Well, and I just to and I should say we're going to open it up to everybody for audience questions in the second half of the show. So please start thinking about those questions. But I wonder if there's a piece of this then that uh, do artists do we need to do a better job of communicating uh, some of these things to audiences? Because I think a, a lot of folks maybe who come to the theater once in a while or come to an art exhibition or what have you think, oh, I'm paying to go see that particular thing, and maybe not thinking about oh, this artist needs to actually buy health insurance or needs to mm-hmm. uh, do X, Y, and Z, all these other sort of back-of-the-house stuff that, that makes more sense, I guess, if you're thinking about a big company or industry than maybe a particular artist. And I think that that's really hard for a lot of artists to, to think about how to communicate that or, or instill that in their, their community, their artists. Yeah, there, there seems to be kind of an assumption that by the greater population that artists will be doing things for free all the time that they will never need to be paid for anything, which is insane. Well, what about the exposure? Yeah. <laughs> for this exposure, yeah, sure, I'll, you know, I'll do that, but two people will see it. But anyway, um, so educating the public about the fact that artists, like everyone else, need to pay their rent and raise their kids and feed people and pay for health insurance. Like any other human being, they need to be paid for their time. And so I will never recommend people... Uh, for any opportunity, people call me and say, can you help us find an artist for XYZ? And I'll ask, are you going to pay them? And they say no, and then I'll say no. And if they will pay, then maybe I'll refer them to Springboard. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, we, we ourselves need to be conscious of that and always push back about this idea that things need to happen for free. Or these, uh, in the non you know, not just individual artists, but arts organizations, these um, foundation grants where it's like the Hunger Games, and everybody has to develop a whole proposal, and then only one organization gets picked. And so these resource-starved organizations have to spend all this time figuring out to put together a proposal. And 99% of the time, they're not going to get any money for that. And it's just sucking resources out. So the foundation thinks, oh, we're doing something great. We're promoting this big Mm -hmm. idea. But then all these people are failing at that and getting nothing. And similar, you know, will you design, we want everybody to uh, provide a free logo and then we'll use the logo of the, the winning artist submission, but nobody else gets paid for their time for developing the logo. You know, it's constant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so just all the artist community and the arts organization community just has to push back. No, nobody's going to do that anymore. That's it. It's a Stop collective it. action. Pro- it's like Stop some it. sort of uh, prisoner. <laughs> it's a prisoner's dilemma, like in a classic sense, though, because that only works if all artists mm-hmm. actually sort of agree. Like, because otherwise, you know. There's... Well, you're not going to get the money anyway if there's 300 people <laughs> putting a logo together for some jerk who won't pay for it. Right, right. You're yep. still not getting any money. No big difference. Right. No, I, I'm. But I'm just saying, like, if uh, if everybody, if you, if everyone agreed, like, oh, we're not going to participate in this. But then there's that one guy who's like, hey, I can draw a logo. I'll mm-hmm. do it or whatever. Like, there's and, always that one guy. I mean, he'll always be there. And you know what happens <laughs> to them in the Hunger Games? <laughs> everybody else gangs up on him. I was watching Hunger Games in my Barca lounger. In your uh, Barca lounger, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I have so many more questions I want to ask you, but we have to turn the stage over to the cast. Uh, so, again, we're going to open it up to you all to ask questions uh, of both Sheila Smith and Laura Zabel. But for right now, can you please help me in a big round of applause for both of them? It's really interesting. So, okay, right here. I'm going to come this way. Uh, so, yes. Would either of you say something about the role of support for K-12? 
art? Well, uh, Minnesota state standards include a requirement that uh, kids get an arts education, uh, K-12. Uh, the problem is that we have local control of schools in Minnesota, so every school board interprets the statute differently, which means that the kids actually get a very different experience uh, in arts education depending upon what school they're in and whether or not the parents of that school district are advocating uh, for the kids in that district, that the arts education is offered during the school day and not just after school, and to all kids, not just a few of them. So if you're worried about uh, whether or not kids are getting uh, an arts education, you should become an agitator to the school board. Agitator to the school board? Yes. Okay, uh, were there other hands up here or any hands anywhere? Right there, I'll come over here, yeah. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about arts or funding for the arts to help promote cultural communities because the disparities between whites and communities of color in the arts is quite similar to everywhere else in society. Yeah, um, and actually I think the in a way there's a linkage between those two questions so part of my I don't know my role tonight is to be a uh, arts detractor <laughs> maybe that's my role every day I don't know uh, arts education is super important um, relevant arts education is more important and I think a lot of times in the arts we have sort of said we've characterized arts education as being about sort of reinforcing cultural norms that come from a very white Western definition of what good art is or what good culture is. And I think that's part, it's a part. There are all kinds of political reasons why arts education has had a hard time, but it, that is also part of why we haven't been able to make an effective case for why arts education is important is because it doesn't feel that relevant to a lot of people in their daily lives. Um, and I feel like that is a role for art and artists to play. There's a role for us to play in engaging in those big conversations about the inequity of opportunity in our state which I think in part is connected to that permission-based culture and our sort of overly infrastructured uh, state that is really dependent on philanthropy and other kinds of infrastructure that is really slow to change and not super adaptable or responsive. Uh, and that's definitely true in the arts. Um, so one of the things I'm really interested in is the ways in which art and artists can help connect across cultures and can help us have that conversation in a more open and honest way than um, maybe Minnesotans are entirely comfortable with on a daily basis. Do you think that art can make Wisconsin great again? <laughs> the thing that I think is really beautiful about, I'm gonna answer this seriously, I'm just gonna take it earnestly. Um, the thing that I think is really beautiful about art and artists and what moves me, what excites me is that even absent traditional funding structures, even absent any kind of state support for the arts. When I go to Wisconsin, there are artists grinding it out in every community, showing their work. You know, every community in Wisconsin has a small art fair where people from that community gather and they buy work made by people in their community. They support people who make their things. And, and in that way, it does, you know, those communities are great and it contributes to that sort of virtuous cycle of investment in our neighbor and in our community, even without 
outside investment or even in a really difficult environment. It, there, are, there are always artists. There are always artists everywhere. I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Is, is there some way that religious communities or faith communities could partner with artists and help um, support artists who are trying to be out there doing their work? Yeah, I was just um, I was just at a conference last week, and someone was talking about how um, if our goal is to support artists and communities, and particularly artists that aren't the kind of usual suspects or aren't kind of validated by the existing systems, that if we don't engage with faith communities, which are one of the homes for sort of lifelong learning in the arts that exist in a lot of places, one of the sort of pieces of infrastructure that really sustain people through a whole life, whether it's choir or visual art or other ways of, of creative expression, um, that that's a sort of part of the community that a lot of the nonprofit infrastructure has left on the table, um, but that is this tremendous asset and, and should be considered part of the arts community. And, and I think there's a lot of really interesting parallels in people's changing attitudes about institutions, and I think we could learn a lot from each other, too, across those communities. And I have a factoid. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sheila has like real numbers. <laughs> I just so, have feelings. <laughs> so you know how the people in Texas feel about football? In Minnesota, that's how we feel about choirs. <laughs> because there are so many awesome choirs in Minnesota and such a strong choral tradition that started in all of our churches uh, and has moved on to support such great um, entities as Vocal Essence and Contus, and there's just a million fantastic choirs in Minnesota. So I consider that, you know, our cultural obsession is choirs. Friday night vocals. Um, exactly. Uh, this is so, that's such an interesting question. I mean, I think it's a really valid question. I mean, I can't help but think sort of a, in a historical context that, you know, for centuries, it was, art was almost exclusively the, the province of faith communities in a lot of cases. And, uh, and now it's... Or almost, rich people. Or rich people, sure. Yeah, but now it's, a, it's almost trying to re... Bring those, I don't know, uh, reimagine that relationship in some ways. Um, did I see that there was a hand here somewhere? Or no, I imagine She's that. Like, no. uh, okay, <laughs> I'll go up not. here to this stranger. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you talked about how kind of we, uh, I'm looking for factoids here, that we kind of are exceptional as a state when it comes to the arts and spending. Can you talk a little bit more about which genres of, I mean, there's so many across the board, you could, it could be theatrical or, I mean, what are the types of art where we in particular are exceptional? Like if we want to go home and brag about X, what is that? Thing? We have more theater seats per capita and more equity ac actors per capita than New York City. We have five times the national rate of employment in publishing. So that's not just, um, the publishers themselves, but the writers, I mean, look at the loft and open book, and it's such a unique institution in Minnesota. Um, part of that comes from Minnesota's population generally being very well educated, uh, which feeds into a lot of people who are readers, which feeds into a lot of people who turn out to be writers, um, but we have an incredibly strong publishing community. We also have an, uh, a very, very strong printing community, uh, for-profit print, uh, print presses. I would also say there's this, um Right now, sort of in the arts community, there's a real sort of trend and focus on community-based practice and practice that engages neighborhoods and is really directly engaged with community and economic development. And, and 
Minnesota, both urban and rural Minnesota, sort of leads that in terms of maturity and depth of work. And I think that's because that work's been happening here for a lot longer than it has from other in other places, partly because of some of the things we don't have here. Um, you know, like, a, you know, it's not like Miami where there's this very established gallery scene where as a visual artist you like work your way up to this thing and then you have a fancy gallery and then that's how you make your living so we artists have to find other ways to make a living and we have really neighborhood focused cities and so that work like the work of Pillsbury House and Juxtaposition Arts and Intermedia um, and a lot of other organizations that do that kind of community-based work get held up as exemplars nationally all the time. We're also the only major metropolitan area that supports two uh, full-time professional orchestras. We are second only to Boston in home ownership of pianos. Does that mean pianos that own homes? No. <laughs> People who own pianos in their house. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> oh, yeah. How many people in your house? Oh. <laughs> Um, so my question is, so you say we have an amazing art scene in Minnesota, amazing um, relationship with economics and art. Is it improving? Is it staying stagnant? Or is it diminishing? It is improving, but it also surfs along sort of with the economy itself. So when in the Great Recession, uh, there was a pullback in philanthropy and ticket buying and all kinds of things and uh, organizations, she can speak to individual artists, organizations hit some troubled water. Um, they are more, than, more or less now recovered from that. The legacy dollars hit right in the middle of the recession and I heard back from uh, especially mid-sized arts organizations who said that if it weren't for the legacy of money hitting just then, they might not have made it through the recession. Um, uh, my problem is every time I study the arts community, I find more arts organizations, so the numbers get bigger. Uh, and you mean so, they're like hiding from you, and then you have yeah, to <laughs> yeah, basically. I mean, there's there's this huge uh, yeasty churn amongst the little organizations. You know, they're popping mm -hmm. up out of the ground like mushrooms all the time, and so. Yeast and mushrooms, and like <laughs> they're a fungus. You know, yeah, they're, they're like, a fungus. They're like, a bacteria. Like out of the out of the fantastic uh, compost, which is Minnesota soil, the primordial ooze. Yes, <laughs> things are popping up all the time. So I, I'll be, you know, I think I found every arts organization in a particular town, and then I go back two years later, and there's more. So mm -hmm. I think it's growing, but um, just because I'm counting more organizations, the totals are growing also. So. Well, let me ask a couple more questions in that vein. Uh, to the question of how it goes forward, are we seeing uh, that young people are sort of picking this up as a career choice in the same way that uh, maybe folks have previously? Or um, is there any sort of legacy uh, component to this as well? That, you know, oh, there have been a lot of these arts organizations uh, that maybe will start to disappear or die off over a period of time. Yeah, I mean, I think. Um you know, the issue of young people sort of seeing them a life for themselves in the arts, I think is something that's something I think about a lot. And I think it's really connected to who feels permission to call themselves an artist and who can imagine um, 
making that life for themselves. And I think that that's a real, you know, back to sort of arts education and questions about equity, I think engaging that question at a really early age for kids um, and helping kids, especially in high school, see a path for themselves and see that as a viable way to make a living. Um, we, used to do, we used to do a panel uh, for high school kids and their parents called So You Want to Major in Art that you could like bring your parent with you. And we would have a panel of artists who were young enough to seem kind of cool but have enough trappings of like a functional life that it would make your parents feel okay about so how, you. So what is that pitch to you the parent because like literally I will and this is an entirely true story when I told my own mother that I was going to start doing the theater of public policy full-time it came because we got uh, a, an opportunity to work with a, an organization for about six months and we we're like this is a jumping off point for us my mother's first thing she said oh this is so exciting congratulations and then she said will you be able to go back to your real job when this is over <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so how do I true. how do I convince her that what I'm doing um, matters? <laughs> you will convince her by succeeding as you are right now. Aww. You haven't you haven't met my mother, but uh, <laughs> and I think by demonstrating that the skills that come from art are skills that we can use in all parts of our life, like the ability to see the opportunity in a challenge, the ability to make and imagine a world out of nothing, the ability to get stuff up on their feet and just get to the doing and try stuff and collaborate. Those are skills that um, transfer to any part of your life. Um, I think that you know that there is, though, I think embedded in that a real sort of imperative for us to call the question about who has that kind of parental support, both financially and emotionally, to pursue that life, and how do we engage people at an earlier age in a, in a different place in their life so that that path feels open to them. Um, that's the only way we're going to start changing some of those really important gaps that um, I think are the things that, whether it's our arts economy or our whole economy, are going to be the things that hold Minnesota back in the future. Well, this is a good, uh, I wanted to ask sort of one more broad question about this going forward in Minnesota. So uh, one of the things that we've talked about on this show uh, is uh, the sort of changing nature of work and the idea that, you know, while we are seeing people move to cities, uh, they're not moving to cities because uh, it's because there's like a factory or a plant there that they need to work there. Mm -hmm. They're moving there because they want to live there or whatnot, which I think goes to what you were saying earlier about, you know, creating place and, and whatnot. But I'm wondering for sort of arts, how does that start to change potentially arts communities? If you can uh, potentially, you know, go and live your life and do what you want to do and choose where you want to live. Uh, and a lot of does that start to change the way that artists interact with their communities? Does it change the kind of art that that emerges in places? Does it change those those sort of interactions in between communities and artists? Yeah, artists artists want to go where other artists are and where it looks like they can be successful as an artist. Um, there was a study of 1,500 artists um, by SNAP, S-N-A-A-P. I cannot tell you what that acronym stands for. SNAP. SNAP. <laughs> um, that asked uh, recent uh, art school graduates if they are now working as a full-time artist and if they believe where they are is a good place to be an artist. 1,500 arts graduates from Minnesota answered, um, and they said that 85% of them said Minnesota was a good place to be an artist and that matched the artist responses in New York and LA. And the rest of the Midwest was all much lower than the seven county metro area here. 
um, if that's any indication. Mm -hmm. And also, I, I can't go through a week without somebody telling me, I moved to Minnesota because the arts community here is so awesome. I think one of the things I that's really that unique time. about Minnesota is that, like, when you say Minnesota, you mean the whole state. Yeah. And that's really different, I think. The the rural vibrancy in Minnesota of um, and the opportunity for artists to make community and to make work in rural communities here is really exceptional. And I think there's sort of a... A rural renaissance, a lot of which is built on creativity and art making, that um, is another piece that, like nationally, people look to Minnesota. You know, communities like Grand Marais and Lanesboro and Fergus Falls for how they've engaged artists in reimagining a future of a community that wasn't entirely sure or wasn't, um, or where there was an industry that had left and sort of they were at risk of. of of losing that talent and that economic drive, they've been able to reinvent themselves through creativity and through creative practice. And that's one of my favorite parts about Minnesota is that our arts community is very much rooted in uh, urban-rural exchange. Yep. <laughs> Question. Uh, <laughs> In, in, in all your studies, in, in all the, in all the um, putting together the demographics and, and the, um, is, is there a difference between, say, say you're a stockbroker or say you're a professional sports player, that's kind of what you are. Um, for artists, is there really a full-time position when you, when you take those over? I know that many of us do three or four different art-related jobs that are kind of related to each other, but that one time one's done, we're immediately looking for another. Um, so what is the definition of Are you of a leaving the troop I'm job? done. <laughs> <laughs> I quit. Come <laughs> There's 104,000 creative workers and artists in Minnesota, but that includes people who both do a gig economy, as he just described, but also people who are employed full-time, for example, by Target to design advertisements. Their work is creating new things, original things as an artist, but they're employed by a corporation. So it's a whole spectrum from full-time employed people to 100% gig people who mm -hmm. have their own small business or they're selling stuff on Etsy or whatever it is. So by artists, we don't just mean visual artists. We mean theater artists and performing artists and all kinds of people. I think that's one of the sort of great uh, tensions and contradictions in, in the artist community and for artists that it is really different from like, if you go to law school and pass the bar, then you're a lawyer. Uh, and there isn't any test that you can take that someone says, now you're an artist. Um, so that can be a challenge in terms of demonstrating your value and getting paid and all of those things. But it's also a tremendous asset um, that in terms of being able to claim that power and agency for yourself and drive your own life and, and drive your own career. Um, I think uh, part of what... Um, I am challenged by is that I think because of that sort of quest for validation that the arts community as a whole has really sort of um, invested in this idea that we're separate and special and sort of magical unicorns that don't live anywhere. We're just floating somewhere in space. Just point of order. I'm, I mean, aren't all unicorns magical? <laughs> Sorry, you were making a point. No, uh, it's, a, it's really, it's a, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I don't know a lot of unicorns, so maybe. There's only the one. Just the one magical one. <laughs> so, yeah, we, uh, we set ourselves up to so be. So we made this, like, special island 
where we said we're special and valuable and that's how you know we're special is because we say so and you definitely couldn't do this, we're very special. Um, and I think in the end that's had this inverse effect where we were saying that on this little island that was drifting farther and farther and farther away from the shore until we realized that no one actually cares that we're on that island. And I think we're in a moment now where there's this real move towards trying to figure out how we re-knit arts and culture back into the fabric of our everyday life and sort of acknowledge that everyone has creative practice and some people choose to make that their living and, and their life and that that doesn't need to be the same, um, but that there's room for everyone. Like I, I'm really fond of saying that, you know, people can run on the weekend and they can feel free to call themselves an athlete and no one's worried that they're going to get confused and show up at the Olympics. Like, we understand the difference. And in the arts, I feel like we're constantly obsessed with this, like, who are we keeping out of this? We can't, if they call themselves an artist, then that might threaten me as a professional. When I think it's actually the inverse. If you run on the weekend, you have a lot more appreciation for people who can run really fast. Okay, so last question. This is sort of a lightning round uh, uh, call to action piece. So uh, folks who are here or they listen to the podcast or whatever and they say, oh, I, I I agree with all the things you said. I, I love Minnesota, and I love that we have this strong... What am I supposed to do about it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Gosh, yeah. Buy original art. Hire artists. Hire a composer to write a song for your husband's birthday. Hire artists. Figure it out. Just go find artists and start paying them. One. Two. Vote in this election. Go yes. to www.artsmn.org, which is Minnesota Citizens for the Arts website. You can download... Uh, all kinds of information about the candidates from president to uh, Minnesota House and their stands on arts issues. Go to our website, then go vote. Yes to all of that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, at every, every day we have an opportunity to spend our money in line with our values, and if what you value is art, then you can spend that money in service of locally made things, just like how people care about local food. I think there's a lot of parallel between those things. Um, and the only other thing I would add is make your own art, make your own things, put your own creativity in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, please, a tremendous round of applause. Sheila Smith, Laura Zabel. Our show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you'd like to see us in person, you can find our schedule by going to www.t2p2.net or find us on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks.